Welcome to the Mayo Clinic Ophthalmology Podcast on all things ophthalmology brought to you by Mayo Clinic. I'm your host, Dr. Andrea Tooley. And I'm Dr. Eric Bothan. We're here to bring you the latest and greatest in ophthalmology, medicine, and more. In today's episode, I am joined by my co-host, Dr. Eric Bothan, to sit down for a casual journal club. Dr. Bothan and I are going to discuss two articles that have been hot off the press and kind of getting a lot of notoriety, a lot of attention, a lot of buzz. So we'll be talking about one ophthalmology-focused article looking at ChatGPT and its use for ophthalmology triage and acute complaints. And then also the currently trending JAMA article on surgeon sex and long-term post-operative outcomes among patients undergoing common surgeries. Excited to sit down with Dr. Bothin today. Eric, thank you for sitting down with me today. This is going to be a journal club. It's just the two of us chatting. It's nice, just the two of us here. How you doing? It's fall. You doing okay? I'm doing great. I've had some recent travel, but it's always nice to get home after some academic trips to just be home and catch up on things. I know we both enjoy outdoors, and I've, I have this hobby farm that has plenty to do in the fall. So it's a busy time. I know you're in your garden having fun too. Yeah, we're both outside in the farm all the time. And you were in India for three weeks. I was. And now you're back. Now I'm back. I will admit I wanted to get through lots of manuscripts and articles and journal reviews as we're going to talk about here. But it was one of those moments where with computer issues, I went three weeks in virtual computer silence because my laptop failed. And so I had no PowerPoint and no Word documents and no ability to, you know, in all those in-between moments. But it, it, it was a great trip, really neat connecting with colleagues internationally. You know, I love that because every time I go on a trip, I have all these grand plans of, oh, I'm going to clean out my email inbox and on the flight, I'm going to review all these manuscripts and get all this done. And then I never do anything. So it's nice that you were forced to I not do anything. <laughs> I, well, I think for many of us, we get about, what, three, four hours of productivity sometimes, and then that flight drunkenness of just brain-numbing productivity hits, and you know, there's not much to do. But. No, the people who get work done on flights always baffles me. I have all these grand intentions, and then I can't do it. But I'm glad you had a forced yeah. digital detox and a great trip, yeah. and the farm's going okay? Farm's going great. We have cattle on the farm, and there's plenty of activity getting... The calves ready to sell and the cows ready in the winter, you know, uh, feeding situation set. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, there's a lot of heavy machinery and fun activity with the people that help me out. That's so great. And I you, though, I, even though I might have some things come off the farm to hit the table, you are, you know, in the, the mode of harvesting your garden actively. And yes. I just am jealous that every menu seems like it's it's colored by your work in your garden. Oh, it's so fun. We're in harvest season. You know, I take a week off in May for planting and then I take a week off in September, October for harvest. And so I have next week off and um, it's, it's, absolute harvest season. I already did all the tomatoes right around Labor Day, canned all my tomatoes. I've already canned all my pickles. We're pretty much done with apples. We have 200 pounds of apples just sitting in crates in our garage right now. But I've already done all the applesauce and all the dried apples. So now we just have to figure out how we're going to give these away (laughs) or store them. And no, it's so fun. So it's great. Minnesota's great. We love this little 
farming life. I'm glad that we share this. Well, next year you can come and help me check pregnancy on cows and yes. I'll come help and I'll eat your salsa that you make. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Deal. That's right. That sounds great. I would love to have animals. One day. One yeah. day. It'll be great. Okay, well, thanks for sitting down to look at these articles with me. I picked out two articles that I thought were kind of hot topics for ophthalmology and then just hot topics in the literature in general. The first one, if it's okay, why don't you go through it? This is this AI article that I have had multiple people message me about, and so we're going to go through it. So yeah, this article is one that I had not seen prior to your suggestion. And for those listening, I think all of us read through articles in our specialty or in our niche and we can easily digest them. And then there's others that you sit back and go, I know this is important and I want to learn more. And I think one of the joys of Journal Club academically is to, in a group way, walk through articles to help pull out the things that are meaningful. This was an article out of Emory, led by Dr. Lyons and company on the list called Artificial Intelligence Chatbox Performance in the Triage of Ophthalmic Conditions. I think all of us appreciate that the AI platform is opening us up to opportunities, but also this tension over, should I be using it? Can I use it? When is it appropriate? When is it not? Am I behind the ball by not doing more than I am? Or am I helping to push the envelope? And this one is one of, I'd say, many that are starting to populate in the sense of how could we use it to help our lives? So why did you pick it out? Well, kind of what you said, the, the new entry of AI onto the scene, you know, first we are seeing it just as technology using for diagnosis and how can this help us with screening for glaucoma, diabetic retinopathy. Now with ChatGPT and these chatbots that you can interact and that can answer questions for you, it's opening this whole new realm for different investigations within medicine. And it's a concern in resident education. You know, are kids going to use this to write their admission essays? I think colleges are worried about how ChatGPT is going to be used. I've heard faculty say, oh, just have it make your PowerPoint for you. It can write your lecture for you. I've thought about using it to write quiz questions for the residents or, you know, how can I use this and incorporate this into my medical life? And then I'm seeing more and more studies, more and more people saying, we're going to see how ChatGPT answers common patient questions. We had a study here that I think is in press looking at how ChatGPT answered common patient triages to see if we could implement using a chatbot to help with patients who write you with post-op questions. I have swelling, or can they answer patient questions within Epic? And can we just have automated responses so that we don't have to respond in Epic? And then lots of oculoplastics questions, you know, patients want to know about Botox or filler, and we've compared patient answers to ChatGPT answers. And so I liked this article because it was comparing resident triage response versus chat GPT response versus the classic Dr. Google where you search WebMD. And that's what a lot of our patients do. Mm-hmm. And that's what that's kind of the comparison. So instead of patients using WebMD, maybe they'll use ChatGPT. And is that going to steer them in a good direction or a bad direction? And then how can we implement this into our practice as we're triaging acute ophthalmic complaints? Yep. And certainly that's the appeal because I think all of us get burdened by our in-basket messaging journey and having ways that we can use such technology would be exciting. As I read this article, I appreciated that they tried to, they have four arms. Mm -hmm. They had a, a group of residents that were asked to respond to surveys 
on evaluating what a potential diagnosis with, with different clinical vignettes. So they started, I guess, with from a patient's side, presenting vignettes to understand, is this symptom concern mm -hmm. and does it help us understand what the potential di differential diagnosis is and then with it the timeliness of care and other associated material. So the one was they drafted these vignettes and sent them to residents. Mm -hmm. And they had 44 vignettes, which I like because that's a vignettes. lot. That's pretty comprehensive. Yep. I thought maybe they would do, you know, top 10 urgent diagnosis. 44 is a lot. Yep. I, d I agree with you. I think one of the unique things about all these as we see these come out is the applicability towards a wide range of conditions across right. the specialties. And we hope that more and more it shows that capacity. So yeah, this had 44 sent to Emory residents and then they compared it to these in different software, the chat GPT, the Bing chat, they're each different in that way. Mm -hmm. And then lastly, the WebMD. We talked a little bit about the results. The takeaway from, I'll go get to the results. So yeah. the physician respondents, they had came up with the appropriate diagnosis among the top three suggestions 95% of the time. Which is great. Which is great. Yep. Chat GPT, 93%, which was impressive to Major, me. Major, yeah. The Bing chat in 77% and the WebMD in 33%, which I think we all... I'm not surprised. Not surprised <laughs> that that WebMD uh, would be low. I think it often causes more trouble than help it does. for our yes, patients. I completely agree. And then in addition to that, they had a what's called triage urgency. So they asked questions to these uh, different arms to say, given your initial impression of this triage symptom or situation, this vignette, how quickly should the patient be seen, mm -hmm. whether it's same day, within a couple days, within a few weeks, or treat myself at home? And so with that... The chat GPT and, or the electronic versions also did well. The physician group came up with a success rate of appropriate urgency mm -hmm. in 86%. Mm -hmm. The chat GPT was 98%. That's wild It's impressive. Me. Yeah. The Bing chat was also 84%, which was mm -hmm. nice. And then certainly the WebMD that did not have that, as they commented on that capacity to be evaluating sensitivity. So that wasn't right. part of WebMD. Yeah, thoughts about that. I will say that to me, I was impressed at how well in this particular study, and I think in others, the software is appearing to be. Yeah. I, the more and more I use ChatGPT, and I, I've used it for a few oculoplastic studies where we ask them, how would you counsel a patient who wants Botox? Or how would you counsel a patient who wants a blepharoplasty? I've been really impressed with the responses, with what ChatGPT tells the patient, this just adds further support to that. It got the, the top three diagnosis right 93% of the time. That's outstanding. And then the big thing for me was that urgency piece. I'm so glad that they included that because I think a big question when we're looking at how patients are going to use this is, is this technology dangerous? Is this going to steer our patients in the wrong direction? Is this a danger to our patients because they'll tell them to treat it at home, tell them to use homeopathic methods or tell them to, you know, do something that could actually endanger them. And so this is really saying probably not. It's probably going to, to steer our patients in the right direction or, or at least conservatively and triage them with the appropriate urgency. So that's very reassuring. And as this is a big black box of technology and we are rightfully scared of the potential and or a little fearful of what it could offer our patients, but I think this is really reassuring.
I agree. I think the parallels, the takeaway that they had in the study that demonstrated excellent triage performance across a broad spectrum of vignettes with providing no potentially harmful responses. They did have a, a caveat along the way of the number that would miss a certain threshold of worry, mm-hmm. worrisome diagnoses that were particularly time sensitive. Mm-hmm. And then they go on to say further study is required because this isn't real world yet. These are model pilot right. type situations. I must admit, I actually, I, I totally agree with you. I had called a good friend of mine who's a statistician and just had him talk about this particular study too. Because, And one of the things that I was struck by after that individual's comments was how this particular study actually probably was biased against ChatGPT. Right. And I'm going to tell you what that individual said. And with that, why potentially ChatGPT did better than what we think in this study. It comes back to the resident group mm-hmm. who we're comparing to, which we think, and we all know, that whether it's a physician who's well-trained or a resident, triaging items over the phone or on the computer is difficult. Triaging is an art. Is an it art. It really is. And all of us get it wrong. Yes, oh, for sure. One of the things that we reflected on was in the methods, they sent out the survey to... 22 residents, not all of them responded. There was a... Yeah, there's a uh, like 30% uh, there was, response rate, right. which, which is, is classic perfect resident. residents. Yes. <laughs> but we both have the same. One of the methods, though, which was striking, was as long as 75% of the resident responses got the diagnosis right, it was called as correct. Mm-hmm. So they gave so them a lower A lower threshold. Benchmark. And then the other debate in the methods, which I don't know for sure comes out easily, is the residents were asked to give up three diagnoses. Right. It almost looked like ChatGPT was asked to give the diagnosis or what was the diagnosis. Right. So they were asked different questions. They asked the resident, what are your top three diagnoses? And they asked ChatGPT, what's the diagnosis? At least that's the sense. That's what it sounds like in the methods. And maybe we're incorrect in it. So if you're part of this paper and we're wrong, let us know. But if that's the case, the residents just had to have it in the top three and they only had to get it right 75% of the time for it to be called correct. And then ChatGPT had to have the correct diagnosis 100% 100 of the time time. to be called correct. And they did it 80 or whatever it was. Right, so their 93% is actually much higher than the resident's 95%. Or it could be, yes. Maybe. Yes. That's what it sounds like from the methods. And I think it's true for, I think we all want a tool that will help us triage better, more efficiently with Mm -hmm. less work. But I think we all realize that triaging is messy no matter what you do because it's communication Mm -hmm. and you don't know the whole picture. Yeah. So it's just using this technology as potentially a tool that once it gets more street tread Mm -hmm. and potentially whether it comes out originally as a draft that gets written that then a staff member or the consultant reviews before it gets sent out, Mm -hmm. you know, just to generate drafts or whether it becomes eventually an automated system is exciting to think about helping our practice of medicine. So that's my question is how do we implement this and where do we use it? Because I could see both things that you said. Either we can use AI to auto-generate patient information. Patient writes in with a question that's not an urgent complaint. They're not asking for an appointment, but they say, how often am I supposed to be using this drop or do I have to sleep with the head of the bed elevated or, or whatever? And, and the chatbot can automatically respond to them and answer their question. There's already one that I use on my Delta app. 
when I say, you know, that's not right. a person exactly. saying my flight was canceled and I need to reschedule. Okay, please give me your flight number and we will reschedule. <laughs> you know, that's not a person. So can is Mayo Clinic going to have a, how can I help you today? I'm having flashes and floaters. And then, at, you know, the chatbot asks them a few more questions and says, based on this, you should be seen within the next three days. We'll go ahead and schedule you. And then is that reviewed by a physician or is that just an automated, now you're scheduled yeah. based on the communication you have with the chatbot? And then what level of accuracy do we require to hand over the acute scheduling to a chatbot? Because now... Patients call into our triagers who are not medically trained. They ask a set number of questions. Which eye is bothering you left or right? How long has it been going on? Do you have decreased vision? Did you recently have surgery? You know, all these questions. And then based on that, they send that form to a resident who then says they should come in today, they should come in tomorrow, they should come in next week, whatever. So if we say the residents are right on the urgency 86% of the time, what do we require ChatGPT, can we just hand this out? Do we even need to go through the person scheduling? Which is crazy to think about. I agree. I would say to me, those are the questions that our listeners and others that are excited about this sort of technology are going to help us figure out. Yeah. Uh, and this is a pilot learning about its capacity mm -hmm. and capabilities and the generalizability into the real world is going to take yeah. probably starting with what you shared where you have it generated and is reviewed in some way, whether prior to the patient visit or after the patient visit, mm -hmm. where you generally have them come in and they're reviewed and you learn at the timeliness, right. you know, in a parallel way. I think we all know that there are patients that call and they share information. It's not the complete picture. Right. And we do the best we can in triaging, but there's a messiness to that communication that's part of patient care. And that isn't necessarily the fault of chat GPT or any sort of AI. Yeah. It's just the difficulties with communication. And so I agree with you. I think it's exciting to continue to see these opportunities and investigations grow as we might be using this more and more. Mm -hmm. Very cool. All right. Well, thank you for going over that paper. I love it. If any listener is uh, associated with this, with this paper or one of these authors, please, please let us know because yes. we loved it. And thank you for your good work. Do you like your Delta app? I, I really oh, get yeah. frustrated. I try to do whatever I can to get by and ask for a real no, person. Exactly. Like zero, zero. No, I hate whenever I'm on the phone, it's like, what, what button do I have to push to get to a human? Exactly. It drives me crazy. I'll tell you the Delta secret. If you have a Delta dilemma is you tweet them and they are so good on Twitter and they will get right back to you. And whoever's on the Delta Twitter is awesome and will completely reschedule your flight all on Twitter. That just means I need to tweet more. I think, okay, my solution is going to be I'm going to text you so yeah. you can tweet Delta for me. Exactly. Andrea, tweet Delta for me. Oh, my gosh. All right. I love it. Number Moving two. on. Here we go. Okay, so this is our, our JAMA surgery article, Surgeon Sex and Long-Term Postoperative Outcomes Among Patients Undergoing Common Surgeries. This paper is hot, hot topic, clearly. It's been super popular on social media. It's getting a lot of press. And I have to admit, anytime I see something blow up like this and go viral, it's my natural character defect that I'm always very skeptical. And I'm not one to immediately jump on the bandwagon and be like, yes, female surgeons are better. See there, you know, <laughs> my natural thought is, okay, but what does it really show? I have a hard time innately 
believing that there could really truly be a difference between male and female surgeons. It's hard for me to wrap my head around that. So I was fascinated by this paper. I really wanted to read it. I'm glad we're going over it. So this is a paper that that was really a secondary paper. The initial paper came out of this huge data set from Ontario, Canada, over a million patients, and they looked at 30-day outcomes in 25 common elective procedures, both elective and emergent surgical procedures. And at the 30-day outcome, they found that female surgeons had better morbidity, lower readmission rates, and lower complications. And the biggest critique of that paper was, okay, but what are the long-term outcomes? Do those differences persist at the 90-day and the one-year mark? So this paper is a follow-up to that one, where they really looked at the 30-day, 90-day, and one-year mark of this same data set over a million patients from Ontario, Canada. They have a large governmental healthcare association, and so they can get all these data. And they found that adverse post-op events defined as death, readmission, or complication was lower in patients treated by female physicians. And that was accounting for the surgical procedure, the patient-specific data, the anesthesiologist, and then facility-level covariates. They did all these different multivariate analyses. So initially, you think, wow, this is a super strong paper. We have over a million patients, huge data set, where you would think that any irregularities would shake out in that many patients. You know, if you only had 500 patients or something, maybe you could have some confounding variables. But in a million, you'd think it'd shake out. Let's dive into what the data show. And then what I really want to talk about is what does this mean? What are some of the differences between surgeons, not just male, female, but different personalities and different things that make us great and things that can better our patients. Because what I think my thesis is going to be at the end of the day is that there are things that whether you are a male or a female or non-binary or any surgeon, you can optimize for your patient outcomes. And maybe those are overrepresented in the female population and less represented in the male. I don't know. So anyways, that's my, that's my initial spiel. Let's dive into it too. And I don't want to hog the mic here if there's no, anything. Good. Yeah. So as you said, in terms of results, we had over a million patients, a very large number. They summarized, you know, 14% had one or more adverse event in the first 90 days. Mm-hmm. And 25% had one or more adverse events by a year. Yeah. It said 2% of patients died within 90 days and 43 died within a year. And then they did the multivariate adjusted rate, multivariable adjusted rates for these different endpoints that we'll talk about. So those are the big numbers of the picture. So as you go through, there are certain statistics just jump out. I mean, certainly what they're commenting on is between the female and male surgeon type, there were differences. So as you looked at this data, what jumps out to you in the data that yeah. becomes helpful to support what they're saying? First and foremost, let's start there. Yeah, so first of all, looking at the general population of male surgeons and female surgeons, it's 75% male surgeons and only 25% female surgeons, 23.3% are female surgeons. So the number of patients treated by female surgeons are much lower than the number treated by male surgeons. And hopefully the those percentages will continue to change as we have closer to 50-50 in terms of male-female entering medical school and entering surgical professions. This was over 
more than 10 years prior. They started looking at outcomes from back in 2008. And so there's definitely time trends that I think will shift. But overall, only 25% from females are just a smaller number in that bucket to begin with. When you looked at the 90-day adverse events, male surgeons were 13.9% and female surgeons were 12.5%. The adjusted odds ratio for that 1.08. So even though I think that was significant, it's small. 13.9 versus 12.5. Not a huge, huge difference there. The difference really comes out at that year mark where you have an adverse postoperative outcome in 25% for male surgeons versus only 20.7% for female surgeons. So 25 versus 20.7. That to me seems like a much bigger difference. And they did really try to control for so many of those different variables, patient age, case complexity, patient comorbidity, anesthesiologist, all kinds of different things. When you look, there's a big table here, and we were kind of chatting about this. The things that stood out to me are the annual case volume. The male surgeons are skewed towards a higher annual case volume, which makes sense. Male surgeons are doing more surgery. And then also, the comorbidities for the patients are skewed towards higher comorbidities in the male surgeons. So male surgeons are operating on sicker patients. And those were significant. I don't think that's enough to explain the the data, but these are all things we have to consider. And when I think about just gender differences between male colleagues, female colleagues, male surgeons, so much of this is, is huge generalizations, obviously. My questions are, are my male colleagues seeing more patients? Are they a little faster in clinic? Are they a little bit faster in surgery? And the case volume would kind of support that hypothesis that maybe my male colleagues have a higher clinic volume. We know that male volumes have higher RVUs and that they make more money because they see more patients. And so does that translate to less time spent with patients? Maybe missing smaller details that ultimately translate into lesser patient outcomes? I don't know. These are all questions. But I think that there's something in the data that support some of those feelings at least a little bit. As you commented, and there's a particular table, baseline characteristics that compare the male surgeon group and the female surgeon group. And I was struck, too, by how parallel they are across so many specialties, and ophthalmology is not one of them. No. Um, so even though I know that I really like to send patients to Andrea Tooley, <laughs> I, it, it, it wasn't studied that way. <laughs> Across the board, the patient characteristics, the anesthesiology, anesthesiologists, the age, their gender, their years in practice, all these things. So it was really well done. And if you're mm-hmm. interested in this, you know, pull up these tables and review. I agree with you. I think I paused on the same aspects of this to say, is there a bias that's entered into this? Mm-hmm. And I would celebrate an answer that there's not, that we can learn from this to help both groups. Mm-hmm. But we also, as you're saying, time out. This is a big data. Is there any reason why that one group is coming out better than the other? Your comment over annual case volume, where the highest volume surgeons were disproportionately men, mm-hmm. That was 25% in the male group versus 20% in the female group. To me, it could be that they're gearing their practice faster. Mm -hmm. I also thought higher up, it was notable that there was a higher age of physician in the male group 
than the females. Mm, yes. And a longer years in practice, which yes. you commented, it may be catching up because we're producing more female physicians now, so that those mm-hmm. numbers will shift as males retire in the older age groups. But yeah. to me, I wondered or I felt that it's possible that the longer you've been in practice, it's potentially you've created a practice with higher volume or different opportunities for you to have higher volume compared to people that are coming out in their ORs and they have to fight for OR space versus block time or different things. So I did think too that that it's how does a higher case volume either skew the results? If you've been in practice longer, are you referred more complex cases Mm -hmm. because you're seen as more senior? Mm -hmm. Are there things behind the numbers being disproportionate there that could be? You brought up that there was higher comorbidities with the male surgeons at the time of the first surgery. Mm-hmm. And that was in the first paragraph. They comment yep. in the results that they said that female surgeons were younger, as were their patients, and also they had fewer comorbidities, which jumped off the page that that would likely affect the results mm-hmm. in the way they came up with. However, when you look at this table, and I know our listeners aren't looking at that, at the end they have what looks like a p-value, but it's not. It's called the standardized difference. And in their methods, when you look back, a standardized difference has to be greater than 0.1. And so even in the comorbidity list, they say up here, mm. females had fewer comorbidities. And down, I mean, only in the highest comorbidity level would the numbers look a little different, 20 versus 17, but it still didn't reach significance by the standard deviation. No, it didn't. But case complexity did. I'm looking at the other table. I mean, those are slightly... Higher up. Yeah, yeah. Higher case complexity for male surgeons. Fair enough. But it's interesting, in in their results, they commented on comorbidities, yep, which right, didn't. wasn't supported in the table. Nope. And then lastly, and this is something I, I don't can't speculate on, it's been too long since I did my rotations as a medical <laughs> student, but the only differences in specialties that, that met standardized difference mm-hmm. statistics, one is that orthopedic surgery was 37%, or I'd say of the surgeons performed by male surgeons, 37% were orthopedic, whereas 8% of the female surgeries Huge were orthopedic. difference there. And in OBGYN, it was exactly the opposite, right. 36% in the female group versus 8 Which we, we, That makes sense. And we could, could, operating on the OBGYN, even though they have complications and risks and adverse events, mm-hmm would those potentially be less longer lasting operating on on a younger Mm. maternal age female Mm -hmm. versus the orthopedic age procedures, which may represent an older. older. These are things that just kind of you dig into, you wonder, well, did that matter? No, it's so interesting that as you were saying this, I thought of another question I had. Maybe I missed this in the paper. And again, if if you've read this paper and please send us a message. I'd love to hear from any of our listeners here. If you look at the year of surgery where they started putting in surgeries, it's also skewed with the older years, like 2007, 2008, 2009, are way higher represented by male surgeons versus the more recent years are more represented by female surgeons. None of those reached a significant standardized difference, but are surgeries getting safer and are more mm-hmm. sure. females entering surgery later when just our overall outcomes are better? And we're including data from 2007, 2008 
where outcomes were worse. I don't know. Is that is that is that valid? I don't know. Maybe, but is surgery getting safer? And is that playing a role? I'm a female surgeon. I think female surgeons are the best. I obviously want this paper to say yes. Female surgeons are far superior to male, but I, to me, it just doesn't make sense. And so I, I really want to know, okay, but why? But what is it about our practice differences? And then how do we optimize that to have the best outcomes for our patients? And then the, the only other thing I'll say, I'll turn it back over to you, Eric, is that I can't not say this. If these data had shown the opposite, that male surgeons had better outcomes, this would never have been published. <laughs> I can't not say that. Like th- no one would publish that paper. And so I think we have to be real about the bias in publishing. And of course, they're going to publish this paper. And any paper that shows something along these lines is going to be published. Does that mean that these data aren't valid? No, absolutely not. Does that mean that we shouldn't celebrate and bring this, that females have been disparaged and called inferior surgeons for years and years and years, and now the data are showing, no, in fact, our outcomes are not equal, they're better. That's amazing, and we should celebrate it. But I can't not say those other things that bug me a little bit about papers like this. Okay. Good. That's a nice or interesting point to make. I'm not going to make it. <laughs> no, I really appreciate just all the difference. This is part of a journey. You learn and you yeah. go back and forth and think, oh, that's an interesting thought. And let's come back then. You started this by saying, if there is merit to this, or as we learn about the merits to this, how can it help all of us? Yes. In the entry to this article, they started out by highlighting how this is not just a brand new hot off the press. By the way, there's a difference. There is a history of studies that are entering into this mm-hmm. platform or evaluating gender as and outcomes of surgical procedures and care. And it spoke in their introductory paragraph to potential reasons surrounding communication, practice style, and a physician-patient relationship. I just think... Not knowing, you know, how to unpack that, I just would say it's interesting to appreciate how all of our different perspectives, whether through identity and in our individual lives, and our affect our patient care. Mm-hmm. And in this case, if as you read this, as you unpack, if there is a difference, and if there is something at the bedside table, or you brought mm-hmm. up our speed of or how fast mm-hmm. we're running in the practice, but. How does it help you appreciate what gifting you have in the practice and how would you advise residents training underneath you to bring those things to a clinical practice to help their outcomes? I think that this paper can really, really help those female surgeons who've fought for years with those little, you know, they call them microaggressions, but those little cuts every day of the patient saying, okay, but where's, when do I meet the surgeon? And wait, you're my surgeon? Or, oh, but I want a male surgeon. Or even just patients feeling uncomfortable at the thought of having a female surgeon and thinking they're not as good as their older, more experienced male counterpart. These data, I think, are so necessary because it says, no, in fact, you're in great hands Mm -hmm. and you don't have to worry. And we have a million patients here to show it. And even if there are subtle differences that skew the data, at the end of the day, 
our female surgeons are taking incredible care of their patients and they have great outcomes. And if there were big glaring discrepancies, it would shake out in a million patients and it hasn't. And there might be small little differences. How do we get to the root of that and really explain what's going on? But I hope that these data give strength to female surgeons to keep doing an incredible job. I hope they reassure patients and help end some of those little microaggressions that really break down the physician patient relationship. You you know, you want good trust. And so if the patients start to realize female surgeons are exceptional, we shouldn't have to fight and prove that, but these data help that, then I think that's wonderful. And then are there little things that we can take from this to show maybe it's not a male-female difference, maybe it's time spent in clinic, Mm -hmm. or maybe it's patient volume. And when you boil it all down, there's no difference between male and female, but surgeons who see less patients have better outcomes. Or not even less patients, surgeons who spend more time in clinic with their patients have better outcomes. Maybe that's the root of it. That's what I would like to do, boil down the differences that aren't male-female, but what is it really? It's it's getting to know your patient. It's taking those extra steps, taking those extra cares. And sometimes you can't avoid post-op complications. We're all surgeons. That's part of it. But what can we ultimately do to give the best care to our patients? I really like studies like this because they challenge me. They challenge a lot of our preconceptions, and I think they make us think a lot. But I don't like just hopping on the bandwagon and, and believing the title that gets you know, blown up in the media, like female surgeons are superior. No, 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 not, not necessarily. Let's take a step back and see what it actually means. And then let's use those data to help us all be better yep. is what I would hope. Outstanding. I, you know, greatly appreciate it as you were talking about microaggressions and this dynamic that a female surgeon or a physician experiences day to day, not being assumed to be the, the surgeon or the physician. I just thought, I appreciate our Mayo badges mm-hmm. that have, I don't, I'll take one out just on my banjo for a moment. But Check here I have Grover on that. Here's my front back. But yeah, on the back the of it, underneath we have these additional things that say doctor. Mm-hmm. And I think they're, we're encouraged to have that side badge because you're right. There are conceptions and biases that people come in. And even just I looking at a person, they judge whether or not mm-hmm. it is. And so I wear this to support all of my team members, the young physicians and females or anyone else that would otherwise not be assumed to be their doctor. I want them to know they are, and I want all of us to wear that, to have that sort of level playing field as we approach patient care. Right, I love it. So anyway, I really appreciate your suggestion for these articles. I love sitting down and just chatting about them. I think we've had a lot of fun. It's great. So I encourage everyone to tune in again soon when we can have a journal club with a guest or just the two of us again. Yep, thanks, Eric. You can find all episodes of the Mayo Clinic Ophthalmology Podcast on our website, Thank you for listening, and we definitely look forward to sharing more.